Well, if you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. And as you're turning there, I... um, I'm going to share with you just a brief conversation I had in the courtyard last week. Uh, I, did, I didn't ask him for his permission, but too bad. Uh, uh, after service, Chris Chu came up to me last week and asked me a question. Who's the, who's the, the worst sinner in the Bible? And I, I thought it was a real question. So I was like, it's me. Because Paul said it's a trustworthy saying that he is the chief of sinners. And I think we can all say those words. I'm the chief of sinners. So it's, it's me. He said, uh, okay. Well, I, I was going to say it's Moses because he broke all Ten Commandments at once. I got played, friends. I got played. Well done, Chris. Well done. Uh, reminds me of another, another little um, meme I saw online uh, with a picture of Moses. Well, I mean, not a real picture, you know. Charlton Heston, closest thing we have to picture of Moses. And uh, holding the Ten Commandments and, you know, if... if, if Moses was the worst sinner in the Bible because he broke all Ten Commandments. He was also, I would say, the most technologically advanced because he was the first one to download information from the cloud onto his tablets. <laughs> so, with those out of the way, let's, let's, let's look back into God's Word now for, for, for real. So, uh, we, we are in Exodus 32. And uh, we're picking back up on this chapter about the golden calf. And uh, the Lord includes this account of the golden calf in the scriptures for us because we're to learn from this example. We're to learn from the example of Israel, not of what to do, but of what not to do, right? And we're to learn from their example because the reality is the seeds of idolatry are in each and every one of our hearts. The, The same seeds of idolatry exist in every one of our hearts, so we learn from their example, and it, and it causes us to reflect, to consider our own hearts. But also, this chapter teaches us about our great God, about His holiness and His grace. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I mean, God could have just chosen to leave this part out of the book of Exodus, to leave this part out of the Bible. Moses, if this was just a man-made book, could have left this part out. If, if the Bible is just Israel's self-history, their, their kind of national autobiography, so to speak, um, if I was Israel, I'd want to leave this part out. It's kind of embarrassing. But the reality is one of the, one of the, one of the most interesting and surprising apologetic arguments for the truthfulness of the scriptures is just how often God's people mess up. I mean, if, if this was just one rosy account of faithfulness one after another, then you would say, yeah, that doesn't sound quite accurate. But instead, it's, if it's filled with Israel's stumblings and failings, um, this is not a man-made book. No, no one would want to write this about themselves. So God is the one who has included chapter 32 here for us, this this incident of the golden calf, and it's meant for our instruction, it's meant for our example to learn from, it's meant for our uh, reflection, and it's meant for our worship, that we would know who God is in his holiness and his grace. And we started last week, I, I um, thought we would get through three lessons on idolatry from the golden calf. I'm a, I'm a man of faith, sometimes blind faith, but nonetheless, we got through one last week. 
Uh, last week, we, we talked about the fact that idolatry is an exchange. Idolatry is an exchange. And we saw in the first half of Exodus 32 how while Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights receiving the instructions for the tabernacle, meanwhile, Israel's down at the bottom of the mountain, just a little ways away. They can see the glory of God on the mountain, and they make a golden calf and begin engaging in idolatrous worship. And we saw there that idolatry is really an exchange. Idolatry gives God's glory to another. Idolatry gives God's glory to another. It it takes what God has done and, and attributes it to someone else. That's why Israel said, behold your God, referring to this golden calf, behold your gods who delivered you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. God brought them up. They said this idol did. Idolatry gives God's glory to another. Idolatry also seeks God's blessings from another. Idolatry seeks God's blessings from another. They wanted a God to go before them to the promised land to defeat their enemies. They were scared of going into the promised land. And since Moses had delayed and and therefore the God that Moses was representing was perhaps not with them, they wanted an an idol to go before them to give them the blessing of the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And they wanted that land, they wanted that blessing, even if it was apart from God. So idolatry not only gives God's glory to another, it seeks God's blessings from another. And and thirdly, idolatry breaks God's relationship in order to pursue another. Another word for that is that idolatry is adultery. Idolatry is adultery. It exchanges God for someone else. And this exchange is at the, the heart and the root of all other sin. We read Romans 1 last week that, that man exchanged the glory of God for a lie, quoting Psalm 106. Exchange the truth of God for a lie. Exchange the glory of God for an image. And therefore, God gives them over. Because of that idolatry, God gives people over to sinful passions and desires. God made us to be worshipers. We all worship something. The question is, what do you worship or who do you worship? And I mentioned John Calvin's well-known quote, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. This morning, I want you to consider it's not the idolatry out there that should most concern you. It's the idolatry in here. It's the idolatry in here. It's interesting as you consider Israel's worship of the golden calf. I just want you to look actually at Exodus 32. Let me read some verses for us here. In fact, let's, let's read the first six verses It says here, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, fashioned it with a graving tool, and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, a feast to Yahweh. They rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And I want you to consider just for a moment a few, a few points here that we didn't get to last week. Israel's idolatry here, Israel's idolatry here, 
was a way for them to worship a God who was a little more user-friendly, a little more up-to-date, a little more culturally acceptable. Uh, There are many scholars who speculate why they made a golden calf. Uh, There were some deities who would be depicted in their idols as riding on a calf. Uh, So perhaps this was sort of a Uh, an anti-ark, the Ark of the Covenant with a golden lid, the mercy seat where God would dwell above it. This was a golden calf, sort of a throne of Yahweh, but an idolatrous one, perhaps. Um, It was an empty throne, so to speak. Uh, Others would say, no, this this might have been kind of pulling from Egyptian worship because Egypt had an idol where they would worship a bull. Ultimately, we don't know exactly why a bull per se, but what we do know is this. They wanted something that they could see something they could touch, something that would go with them, something that they could say to the nations, look, here is our God. They didn't want an invisible God that you just had to trust. They wanted something tangible, visible, a little more user-friendly. If I could sort of apply this to us today, perhaps sometimes we are tempted to think in this way, more people would believe in God if he was a little more fill in the blank. Maybe, maybe more people would believe in God if he was a little less fill in the blank. Uh, the God of the Bible, he, he's good, but you know what? He needs a PR agent. Let me mm, soften some of the edges. Let me make him a little more user-friendly and something they're more familiar with, something they're more comfortable with. But, but the problem is, If you do that, then you're no longer worshiping the God of the Bible. You're worshiping a God that you have made, whether with golden uh, instruments and with your hands or with the faculties of your mind. When you say, well, let me just shift who God is a little bit, make him a little more user-friendly, a little bit easier to imagine, a little bit easier to to handle and grip onto, you have created an idol, Uh, someone who is not God, someone that you have made that you think is more worthy of worship. Uh, Typically, when we create an idol, oftentimes that God that we worship is really just an idealized version of ourselves, a God who would do what we do if we were in that situation. That's idolatry. Now, in this case, it's it's interesting here. You notice that he says, these are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And then verse 5 says that he made a proclamation, tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh, to the Lord. There's some spiritual schizophrenia going on. There's some spiritual confusion going on. Which one is it? Are are we worshiping these false gods, this idol, or are we worshiping the true Lord? And there's this confusion going on. There is what is known as syncretism. They were mixing together the worship of true God with idolatry. This is not good. This is... This is like saying, well, it's not full-on adultery. I'm just adding somebody else on the side. So idolatry here is adultery. Idolatry here would include syncretism, where you are mixing together. You're trying to shift and morph the true worship of God and incorporating elements that are a little more culturally relevant. And also, I want you to notice here in verse 6, it says, excuse me, 
And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They were offering burnt offerings. They ate, they drank, and they played. And you're like, well, what does that mean? Like volleyball? What were they playing? Cornhole? That word play there has a connotation of sexual immorality. It has a connotation of sexual immorality. They worshiped the Lord. They made a feast to this golden calf and to Yahweh in some strange syncretistic worship, and they did so through immorality. Now, in those days, oftentimes the worship of false gods was mixed with immorality, with sexual immorality, with all kinds of perversion. The Canaanites did that, and and many ancient Near Eastern cultures would worship in the idols and the temples of their idols through means of sexual immorality. And it's interesting because why would that be? And and I would even argue today uh, that the idols of our culture are not typically made of stone and gold, but the idols of our culture are, are those that are pursued within the heart and Still, we worship those idols through sexual immorality. But this makes sense when you think about it. Because if you're going to create an idol, then you're going to want to create an idol that wants worship in a way that you want to give it. If you're going to create an idol, you're going to want that idol to demand worship in a way that you want to give it. In other words, idol worship, idolatry, always caters to the flesh. Idolatry always caters to the flesh, either through man-made asceticism, through man-made religious works, which gratifies the proud and the religious. That's, that can be a form of idolatry. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. You can make a religious idol where you worship that idol by your religious strict observance, where you think your external behavior and conformity pleases this idol. Idol worship caters to the flesh either through man-made asceticism, which gratifies the proud and religious, or it caters to the flesh through the pursuit of pleasure and indulgence. Either way, we worship idols in a way that strokes our ego or strokes our flesh. It pleases us. It boosts us up. We worship idols because we want what they can give, and we worship in a way that feeds our pride or our flesh or both. Idolatry seeks to worship God in sinful ways. It seeks to worship God in a way that gratifies the flesh while or relying on our flesh. So, so let me ask you this morning, as you consider this golden calf incident where they wanted a God to go up before them, to protect them, to deliver them into the land, they wanted the blessings of God without the person of God, they gave the glory of God to another, they exchanged the, the, a relationship with God to pursue another, I want to ask you, is there anything in your life this morning that would fall into those categories? Uh, is... Is there perhaps an idol in your life of the fear of man, the desire to be liked, the desire for others to think well of you, whether others within the church, so you carry the biggest Bible you own to church and you do everything at church that you can possibly do, or because you want the approval of man outside the church. So you shave off those things about Christianity that would be offensive. Oh, I'm not like those kinds of Christians. No, no, no. I'm a nice, user-friendly kind of Christian with a user-friendly God. 
and you thereby cut off the holiness of God that should cause us to tremble? Might there be an idol of of self that shows itself in your work? Sometimes we use words like workaholism to mask the idolatry of building up our reputation, of wanting to feel needed, wanted, revered. I mentioned last week the, the idol perhaps of financial security, of financial success. Perhaps this morning, and, and here's what's tricky, sometimes the best things in life, good things in life, the best gifts that God gives often become the most dangerous idols because it's so hard to detect. Could it be that there might be an idol in your life of, of family, whether the desire to get married or to have a perfect marriage, perhaps the desire to have picture-perfect children who do exactly what they should do. I'm often convicted as I think about that particular one because why are parents tempted to be frustrated or impatient? Because their idol of having perfect children has been threatened. And again, in our culture today, I would be remiss to say this, that the the gift that God gives of of sexual intimacy, that the gift that God gives, which is a good and gracious gift of God designed by God for his glory and our good, we take that which is so good and pervert it and twist it into our own idol for our own fulfillment, whether by pornography, fornication, adultery, any combination of LGBTQ type issues. And again, I want to make sure this is clear. This is not a, yes, let's rail on what's going on out there. I want to challenge us in our hearts. Have you ever considered that when you go through the Old Testament, yes, there is, there is condemnation of idolatry among the nations, but more often than not, the condemnation is pointed at God's own people because they should know better. I should know better. We should know better. Are there any idols in your life that you're holding on to, that you are worshiping, that is almost like God or maybe the polar opposite of God, and you do that secretly. And I ask you this morning, will you repent? Will you grind that down and say no more? So idolatry is an exchange. Review from last week and a little expansion. Second lesson. Idolatry deserves wrath. Idolatry deserves wrath. We saw that last week, that God's anger burned hot against Israel, and Moses interceded, Lord, don't destroy them. Remember your promise. Moses goes down and sees what's actually happening, and then Moses burns hot with anger. It's the same language. Moses sees that he, in a sense, is representing Israel to God, but also representing God to Israel. He's standing in that mediating kind of role, and he has this anger because God has anger against idolatry, against sin, against spiritual adultery. And when you understand the nature of idolatry, when you understand the nature of sin, God's wrath makes a lot of sense. You see, sin is not just about law-breaking, breaking an arbitrary rule that someone made up. Sin is about breaking covenant with God. It's about breaking a relationship with God. A God who made us, a God who knows what's good for us, a God who loves us, and yet we say, no, thank you. Of course, this would deserve wrath. 
And so Moses, in coming down, his anger burns hot. He throws down the tablets because he understands the covenant is broken, and it will only be renewed and reinstated with Israel after Moses intercedes again and again and again. It won't be until chapter 34 that the covenant that God had made is reinstated and the tablets are remade. Idolatry deserves wrath because we take what God gives us, the gifts that God gives us, We take to serve another. What he gives us that we're supposed to use to worship him, we take that and serve someone else. That's what they did with the gold. The gold they got from Egypt as their spoils, they're supposed to use that for the tabernacle. They use it instead to make a calf. I breathe the air that God gives me. I eat the food that God gives me. Why? So that I can sin against him. How wicked. How wicked. He gives us every moment we have. The next heartbeat you have is a gift from him, and we use it to sin against him. Brothers and sisters, it should not be. And so this deserves wrath. Notice God's wrath there. It says says in Exodus 32, Verse 10, now therefore, let me alone, the Lord says, that my wrath may burn hot against them. Then you go down and you see in Exodus 32, verse 19, as Moses came down to, and came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hand. He ground down the, the calf, burned it with fire, ground it down, scattered it on the water, and made them drink it again. That's, I think, an allusion to the test of adultery in Numbers 5, which shows that God views this as spiritual adultery. He confronts Aaron in verse 21. Let's read 21 to 24. Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you? That you have brought such a great sin upon them. This is not a small sin. This is not a normal sin. This is a great sin. And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this, Mount, this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. It came walking out mooing. Of course, you recognize Aaron's excuses and his blame-shifting. Uh, perhaps this might remind you of another instance where man walked with God in a sacred mountain, sinned against him, and as God confronted them, confronted Adam, Adam said, the woman you gave me. This blame shifting is nothing new. Aaron says, the people, the people made me do it. And I didn't even do anything. I just walked out just like this. Verse 25, and when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. 
You see God's wrath, you see Moses' wrath, you see, in a sense, Levi executing God's wrath. A discipline, a punishment upon the people. Perhaps you remember Levi, one of the, one of the 12 sons of, of Jacob. He at one point had, out of zeal for his sister's purity who had been who had been defiled, he and another brother went and killed all the men of Shechem. And he was not esteemed for that. He's a man of anger and bloodshed and violence. And yet here, that zeal was turned in a right way under God's direction to go through gate to gate, making no Excuses, no provisions for, this is my friend, this is my brother, this is my son. Now, just to be clear here, there were, as we would find out later, about 600,000 men. So for 3,000 men to fall out of 600,000 is perhaps a small number, though not insignificant. Why 3,000? We don't know. We're not told for sure. Perhaps those were the 3,000 who were the leaders of the people who should have been holding people back from this. Or perhaps those 3,000 were the leaders of the idolatry. They were leading in that sin. Or perhaps those 3,000 were the ones who were still, even yet, after Moses came down through the tablets, made them drink the water, perhaps these 3,000 were still engaging in that play. We don't ultimately know. But the Levites were going through the camp, killing 3,000 of them. God takes sin in the camp seriously. God takes sin in the camp seriously. God takes sin in the church seriously. God takes sin in his children's hearts seriously. So what's interesting is, you know, the, the, the Levites, the, the Levites that, that tribe would be the ones set apart to serve in the temple, to serve in the tabernacle. In a sense, they are asked later on, they're commanded, not just in a sense, they are literally commanded later on to keep and to guard the tabernacle. They're to guard the holiness of the place of God. And here they are, in a sense, ordained into that service by blood. They're to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. To borrow the words of Jesus, any man who loves father or wife or brother or sister or anyone more than me is not worthy of me. And the Levi said, yes, we will do it. And again, this is not about executing God's wrath outside the camp, but are we, are we that zealous for God's holiness inside? So they are commanded here to guard the holiness, to vindicate the holiness of God. This is a picture of the wrath of God against, against sin. It's not just sin back in Egypt, sin back in, or ahead in Canaan. This is sin in Israel, and it must be dealt with. We have to be zealous like the Levites to root out sin in our own hearts, in our own homes, in our own church, by means of repentance. I want you to read down verse 30 to 35. For the next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, 
Please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. I want you to notice verse 35 there. It says that the Lord sent a plague. He sent a strike. He struck. He smote Israel. This is the same exact word in Hebrew that God uses to describe what he would do to Egypt. He struck Egypt. He struck Egypt. He struck Egypt. And here when his people sin, he strikes his people. God takes sin seriously, particularly among his own people. He takes unfaithfulness seriously among, he takes it seriously, especially among his own people. So he strikes Israel. You know, this reminds me of the words of an English Puritan, John Flavel. He says this, it is easier to cry against 1,000 sins of others than to kill one of your own. It's easier to cry against a thousand sins of another than to kill one of our own. Brothers and sisters, may we be those who are zealous to kill our own sin. To cut off our right hand, pluck out our right eye, do whatever is necessary to say, Lord, help me to be holy. Lord, help me not dishonor you. Now, I look forward, I look forward to, to heaven for many reasons, but one is that I'll never have to say again, Lord, forgive me. Lord, I sinned. Lord, I failed. When we are there, we'll be perfect. We will never sin again. Brother and sister, does that, does that not give you joy and a hope and eagerness and longing? It's easier to cry against 1,000 sins of others than to kill one of your own. As a church, I fear far too often believers in our culture are known for crying against the sins of everybody else but their own. May we do the opposite. When the church is holy, it will have evangelistic power. Some of us are far too concerned with reaching others before we sanctify ourselves by the Lord's grace. Now, by all means, we'll never be perfect. By all means, let's preach the gospel. By all means, let's share the love of Christ. By all means, let's do works of mercy and goodness. But friend, when the church is holy, we will have evangelistic power. And when it is full of hypocrites, it will have none. When when our church is filled with half-hearted love to Christ, how can we possibly convince others that it's worth loving God? In Acts 9.31, it says this, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. The church was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. As the church was built up, as they walked in the fear of the Lord, in other words, as they walked in holiness because of who God is, the church multiplied. Idolatry is an exchange, but idolatry deserves wrath. Idolatry requires repentance. Repentance. But lastly, 
Third, idolatry requires atonement. Idolatry requires atonement. In that last paragraph there, Moses goes to intercede for the people a second time. He intercedes for them first before he even comes down the mountain. Lord, don't, don't destroy them. God said, I'll wipe them out and start over with you, Moses. I'll make a great nation of you. I'll use you instead. You'll be a new Abraham, a new Adam, so to speak. Moses said, no, remember your promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Don't do this thing. Spare your people. They are your people. This is your name on the line. And so God relents there. He does not destroy them all, though there is a measure of discipline. And now Moses says, okay, not only am I pleading with the Lord not to destroy them all, I want to go and make atonement. Atonement uh, atonement is an interesting word because it's not one that we use very often outside of church. But atonement, you can see it there in the word itself, at one, at one-ment. That's the idea. To bring restoration, to bring reconciliation, to, to restore the gap that is now there between God and man. I, I will try to make atonement. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. This is a great sin, but perhaps I will make atonement. And he doesn't tell the people his plan, but he knows in his heart what he's about to do. He doesn't go up and, and argue based on Israel's worth. Lord, you, you see your people, they're so good. You kidding me? He doesn't go up on the mountain and say, God, there's so much potential. Just consider what they could do for your name. Moses does not rationalize. God, it wasn't that big a deal. Just a golden calf. Just one time. I was gone for 40 days. He does not rationalize does not minimize. He calls it a great sin. He calls it a great sin. Moses goes up to intercede because he understands that God's glory must be vindicated. His people have sinned a great sin. God's glory must be vindicated. So Moses goes up. Verse 32, now if you will forgive their sin. It's like he doesn't even finish the thought. Just if you would please, but, but if not. Please blot me out of your book that you have written. This is reminiscent of Paul's words in Romans 9, isn't it? Paul has unceasing anguish in his heart for his kinsmen according to to his flesh. He he would be willing to, to perish and suffer if only the salvation of others would be brought about. And of course, Paul can't do that. I can't do that. Moses can't do that. Moses himself is a man of sin. But you see Moses' heart. God's glory must be vindicated. God's glory must be vindicated. There must be atonement. How can atonement be made between God and sinful men? How can it be made at one? Again, Moses is the intercessor. Moses is the mediator. And he understands atonement can only be made once justice is satisfied. He understands We've only gotten hints of this so far through the, the sacrifices that have been made, the, the, the sacrifices to ordain the priest. We've had hints of this through Abraham offering Isaac on the altar. We've had hints of this throughout the Old Testament. We've had hints of this in the Passover especially. But now Moses, he gets the hints. And so he says, atonement must be made by means of a substitute, by means of a substitute who sacrifices himself. Lord, would you take me and spare your people? I mentioned this last week. You can keep a finger here in Exodus 32 and turn to Psalm 106. Psalm 106, right in the middle of your Bibles. 
Starting in verse 19, look at this. They made a calf in Horeb, Horeb being another name from Mount Sinai, same place. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them? He's obviously referring to this golden calf incident here. God would have destroyed them had not Moses, the one that he had chosen, had he not stood in the breach between God and man. He stood in the breach between God and man to turn away God's wrath. Now, of course, there is a sense in which God listened. He didn't destroy all of Israel. But, but here, God does not listen to Moses' prayer completely. Right? He said, Verse 33, the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. I will hold that person accountable. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. In other words, nevertheless, I will bring judgment upon them for their sin. And thus, verse 35, the plague that is sent, that God struck Israel. So, So God, listen to the first intercession, the first prayer of Moses. Don't destroy the people altogether. Moses listened. God listened to Moses there. Here, Moses says, forgive them. Let me make atonement. And God says, no. Moses, you are not able. There's a sense in which he stood in the breach and turned away the wrath of God, and there's a sense in which he could not, and he did not. A better mediator was needed. A better substitute was needed. A more unblemished substitute was needed. A a more radical exchange was needed. Israel had exchanged the glory of God for an image. A substitute would need to stand in their place such that God would pour out his wrath on that substitute rather than on his people. We need to know about the golden calf because we need to examine our hearts for any idolatry that may be present to consider what idols must be smashed down, ground to dust, never to be resurrected again. But We also need this account of the golden calf to remind us of the need for atonement, the need for a substitute, the need for a mediator who is better than Moses, a mediator who has no sin of his own to pay for, a mediator who is able to plead on behalf of God as God, with the heart of God, with the power of God, with the righteousness of God, for the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 5. You you understand these things. If you've been in church for any length of time, you understand that all roads lead to the cross, that Christ is the answer to every Sunday school question. If they're over there in children's Sunday school, yes, the answer is Jesus. Amen. Every promise of God is yes and amen in Christ and in no place else. They need a mediator. They need somebody to stand in the breach to truly and fully and finally satisfy the wrath of God. And that would only be done in the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5. I love this verse. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. 
for our sake, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, for our salvation, for our forgiveness, for our atonement, he, that's God, God made him, that's Jesus, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin. Jesus was absolutely righteous, absolutely spotless, and he made him, the righteous one, to be sin on our behalf, so that in him, and only in him, only in Christ might we become the righteousness of God, so that God would look at Christ while Christ was on the cross, and Christ absorbed, satisfied the wrath of God that that we deserved, so that God could look at us and treat us as if we have lived the righteous life that Christ did. Friend, I want you to understand, any talk of idolatry is heavy. Any talk of sin should be heavy. Any talk of the wrath of God should be heavy, but I want you to know that talking of these things, if it leads us to Christ, it is a joyous thing. It is a cause for celebration that though you and I deserve the wrath of God and have no way out for ourselves, yet God is the one who's made a way out at a great cost, the cost of his son, Jesus Christ. So that we, idolaters, we, adulterers, we, sinners, can be forgiven. And not only forgiven of our sin, but now empowered to break down those idols. Empowered to walk after God. To have the Spirit of God within us to cause us to walk in righteousness and enjoy loving God and glorifying Him because we want to and we get to, not because we have to. Friends, this is This is the heart of what we believe, isn't it? Though we have exchanged the glory of God for an image, God has exchanged his son for us. May we rejoice. May we rejoice in that salvation. And as 1 John 5.21 says, because of that, 1 John 5.21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for your kindness. Lord, we thank you for the gift of Christ. We do not deserve it. Lord, would you bring repentance and conviction in our hearts for the half-hearted love we give, for the syncretistic love that we give, for the false worship we give. Lord, would you grant repentance and help us to walk after you in holiness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.